From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome to What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square2 Marketing. I'm joined by my longtime friend and business partner, Eric Kalis. Eric, say hi to everybody. Hello to everybody. Uh, thank you all for joining. Today, we're going to be talking about content at scale. It's a real problem for people in the marketing space. Uh, you need so much content today, how you create it and your process and systems behind it. We're going to cover all that today. I want to really uh, throw a shout out to everybody who joined us today. We do have a lot of questions. We'll spend a lot of time answering questions today. My housekeeping, top of show comments. If you're following the show, check us out on YouTube. Please like us and subscribe. When you find us on YouTube, you can simply search Square2 Marketing and find the What's Wrong With Revenue channel on the Square2 Marketing channel. You can see all our episodes there. You can also find all the episodes on our website at the bottom. There's a link, what's wrong with revenue, click on it. You can subscribe. We will email you uh, on-demand shows. We will let you know what shows are coming up. And on that page, you can submit questions like the questions we got today that we will cover in the show. And the show is on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you're into audio, check us out on YouTube, Stitcher, not YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, Apple, Podbean, all your favorite uh, podcast platforms. So I really appreciate everybody joining us today. Really appreciate the support you guys have had for the show up until now. Today, we're going to talk about content at scale. You need more and more high quality educational content to earn the attention of your prospects. They are looking to be educated and you have to be the leader in educating them. But you have to create content at scale because if you're doing it one-off, it's not gonna be efficient, it's not gonna be productive. So in this episode, we're gonna go deep on the different types of content, how to scale written content, video content, audio content. We're gonna share the secret to our hub and spoke content strategy that we use at Square Two. We're also going to talk about how we scale content around the show, which is particularly relevant if you're trying to create a lot of content in a short amount of time. And we have an Easter egg for you today. So if you stick around long enough, there may be an opportunity for us to help you with your content scaling issues and more about that later. So um, we're also going to cover how to leverage content across social platforms. That's a challenge for people. Um, how to use content at each stage of the buyer journey, how to produce that, and maybe when to use internal resources and when to use outside resources to produce your content. Um, all content, all the time. That's what we're going to cover today. Eric, you got anything for our uh, audience before we dig into it? Well, along the lines of content, I want to remind you that when we decided to do What's Wrong with Revenue, you were like, we're sticking with it. We're going to do 100 episodes and we're going to make sure. And you know what? 
you were right. The stats are going up every single week, just opening the kimono a little, more shares, more views. I, I think it's more asynchronous than synchronous. We get a good amount of people that sit in on Wednesdays at four, but the lion's share, people are watching it on their time. And there's a lot of insights that came from watching the metrics on this show, which I got to give you credit. You were right. You stick with it. You get enough momentum to keep it uh, going. So a little bit of positivity as we begin today's episode. Yeah, I mean, just to talk about this content specifically, I thought it would, look, I didn't know what to think, right? I thought, you know, this amount of episodes would be enough to really get a measure of how it's doing. But the more I research it, and the more I learn about this kind of content, the more I read for experts who have done what we're trying to do, you really got to do 100 shows, right? So we're on show 23, I think. And Eric's right, we're getting to see some positive you know, slow up and to the right. We've even had people who have told us they've watched the show and they really love it and they've shared it with their leadership team. And we've gotten some people who have watched the show to reach out to us to talk about work, which is nice. But you really do got to, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, we talk about that related to just marketing in general, but when it comes to content creation, a big takeaway you, you ought to like bring away from this show is it, uh, it is a marathon, not a sprint. If you think you're going to do a couple of shows and cash in, that's probably not going to happen. You really got to stick with it. So that's a good point, Eric. Absolutely. You know, um, there's also an evergreen part of this. The other day I got asked for a speaking gig and they said, we, we know you're good, but could you send us some videos uh, so we can see you in action? So I went to our YouTube channel and you know what I sorted by? Number of views. Yeah. And there are videos on there that I did literally 10 years ago that have 15, 20,000 views. And they're just out there. They either have a good title. One of the good ones was how to, how to, how to audit your own marketing is a very yeah. popular one. And I literally recorded that when I had black hair. So, you know, it's a, a quite a, a nice statement that even though you're making the content, it, it just lives forever and it can continue to drive activity for your business. It does. And we, you know, uh, again, in full transparency, we used to do a lot more blogging like two years ago. And you know, I always thought like the blogs had lo longevity and staying power and perpetual, uh, you know, stickiness. But the video and the audio content is 10 times as powerful. And I think most of that is because it's on these other platforms like YouTube and the podcast platforms too, whereas, you know, our blog is really only on the square two blog. So we do have a lot of subscribers and we do have a lot of people who read the blog and comment, but this other content that we've been creating just for the past couple months is in all these other places, which I think is better in terms of getting it in front of people who don't know us. The blog, obviously people who know us and have subscribed to it. So uh, yeah, very good takeaway from this whole content journey that we are on for sure. So, all right, let's get into it. We have a lot of questions and they're really good questions. So I think it's gonna cover most of the topics that I kicked off the show with. So um, this question is from Rhonda in New York City. Can you walk us through the, an actual example of content across the cyclonic buyer journey model? So I think this is a, it's a very specific question, but it's gonna allow us to talk about a couple different aspects of content. So. Maybe you could enlighten the uh, audience a little bit on how we use the cyclonic buyer journey and maybe give them a little backstory just so that they understand what that is, how we deploy content across that buyer journey and why that might be better than kind of randomly creating content and just putting it out there and, and hoping it finds the right prospect at the right time. Yeah, it's a great question. So we'll start from the very beginning, right? 
when we're talking about the buyer's journey, we're referring to the first time that someone hears about your company all the way through until they buy something and even after they become a customer and they buy even more. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at it as a very, very long um, uh, 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 journey. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's a trip to educate yourself and to understand that this is the right place to buy from and what products to select and so forth. So the first thing is you have to think about it in terms of the buyer's journey. If you get that darn old funnel out of your head, top, middle, and bottom, which was actually created in 1890 and still the gospel today, the problem with that is it's incredibly linear, right? People don't buy that way. They don't wake up and go, I'm going to do research and at noon, I'm going to select some alternatives and by dinner time, I'm going to sign my name on a contract for $50,000 worth of software. It just doesn't work that way. The cyclonic buyer's journey that we um, created was simply to match up with the people, how people buy today. It's not because Mike and I say so, it's because that's the way people buy. The internet, all the things that go along with that, social media platforms, and also um, the data and noise that's swirling around everybody. And I always use the example of that uh, dad who wants to buy their child a car because they're becoming 18 and they're ready to buy. They think they're gonna get a used car. Then they go and do research. Then they come across in their research, the topic of safety. And of course they want their child to be safe. And then they say, well, we'll buy a used Volvo because Volvo talks about safety. Then the kid says, dad, there's no effing way I'm driving a Volvo. That's not cool. Then they're back to square one. Then you have dinner with your brother-in-law says, why would you do that? The leases are so cheap on new cars and you're getting a new car. Then what am I going to do with my car? If we have to do no, I'll get the new car. I'll give my, and it's just swirling around without having a clear path. What the cyclonic buyer's journey does is it cuts a clear path through all that noise to help your buyers jump from one to second to third to fourth to eighth step on the cyclonic buyer's journey where they sign their name on the dotted line. So just putting that as a foundation, that's number one. Now, number two is as people are going through the journey, they're experiencing different dimensions of that journey, right? In the beginning, they're like, I got a problem. I got to solve this. Let me do a little research, okay? Then maybe it's like, okay, well, I got to educate myself because there's a lot of options here. Then they're like, okay, well, I found these three options. So which one is best for me? Then there's like, well, I really like the most expensive option. So I got to rationalize that. Okay, I'm going to go for the most expensive. Then I got to negotiate the deal. Then I got to sign my name. I know I'm simplifying, but it's a very easy way to get lost in all those steps that happen uh, as a salesperson. What happens is, or I should say a sales and marketing person, what happens is you got to stand in the shoes of your prospective buyer and you have to experience what they're feeling as they go through that journey, as they explore your firm and the other options. Now, as a long answer to your short question, Mike, the content that you create will match up to where they are at each stage of the journey. And even more importantly, answer questions and concerns they might have at that step. So like, oh, that makes sense. Now I'll move on to the next step. And that's where a lot of people fall down. Most folks put all their energy into offers at the end of the journey. Talk to a salesperson, let us give you a quote. And we already know from past episodes that that's akin to going to a cocktail party, meeting someone for the first time and asking them to marry you. Like it doesn't work. You got to build a relationship. And that's why people that lean more into the uh, early journey content and even sometimes more importantly, the middle of the journey where you're differentiating and knocking out the competition than it is to say, hey, let's just give you a quote. And I think that that's a good high level look of how people should think about the journey and some of the mistakes they make today.
Yeah, that was a really great explanation. I mean, the, the topic today is content at scale. So you need a framework or a model like we're talking about. You don't have to use the cyclonic buyer journey. That's just the one we created, the one we use for our clients. You know, HubSpot has this flywheel that has three different sex stages in it. And, you know, Eric did talk about, you know, the traditional funnel. What is it? Awareness, consideration, decision or something like that. Um, there are a lot of, of, of buyer journey frameworks that you can use, but if you're trying to create content at scale, you need something. You, you need, you need a, a, a guidebook or a, the, the map analogy is, is just too perfect that we, we, we keep coming back to it, but you need a map. Like if you have in the cyclonic buyer journey, there are eight stages, right? We, we, we wanted to have a more granular view of the prospect buyer journey because of the kind of work we do and the kind of clients we work with, like three stage steps. It's just not enough to, to decide what tactics to deploy and what content to create. So with the framework, you start asking yourself, well, what questions are the prospects asking at each of these different stages? And pretty quickly, you start to realize that the questions are different. So to answer Rhonda's question, which she wanted an actual example of content across the cyclonic buyer journey. So it's a great question. And let's just use the agency as an example, because it's going to be the easiest one for us to talk about. When people have problems uh, generating leads or growing their company from a revenue perspective, then they start looking for answers to, to those questions. Like, well, you know, are, are all companies having this problem or is it just me, right? Uh, uh, what should I be thinking about when it comes to generating more leads for my company? What tactics might be, marketing tactics might be appropriate. Is it a marketing problem or is it a sales problem? Like the whole point we named this what's wrong with revenue is because if you're looking to grow revenue, it's a revenue problem, not a marketing or a sales problem. So, you know, when we publish content for people in the beginning of the buyer journey, it's to help them start to answer the question of what do I need to be thinking about around growing my company? So we talk about things like aligning sales and marketing as a single revenue department. Or we might talk about, like Eric mentioned, the overall experience that prospects are having with your company and how that impacts whether they decide whether they want to work, work with you or not. It's kind of broad and general. And the idea is to start to educate them so that they start to be more comfortable with us and our content and our positioning and our approach. And, and, and in a lot of cases, we give that away without asking for anything else because they're so early in their buyer journey. I don't want to need, I don't want to ask them for their email address. There's just, they're just starting out. They're, they're just exploring as they get a little deeper into it. They may start to decide, you know, I need to, I actually need to do something about this now. Before they were just getting educated on what's going on in general. Now they decide they need to do something. So now they're looking for different kinds of content and they're asking different questions. Things like, well, do I hire somebody, right? Do we, do we hire internally? Um, do we uh, uh, spin up a team of contractors as an example? Instead of making a full-time hire, they make a part-time hire. Should I consider an agency? There's so many agencies. What kind of agency? Do I want an inbound agency? Do I want a demand gen agency? Do I want a branding agency? Do I want an ABM agency? Wait a minute. There's software that does this too. I learned about HubSpot and Adobe and Salesforce. Like maybe I should be thinking about software. Like in two minutes, I 
explains so many high level concepts that if you're really trying to crack the code on this, where, how could you possibly figure that out on your own? So they keep doing research and they keep looking for additional information and we keep feeding them. The better we are at feeding them answers to their questions, the more they come back to us, the more they engage with us, the more they want to participate in the content we're providing them. And we're using that content to continue to walk them through their own buyer journey. Eventually, we're going to get to the point where they've decided they want to hire an agency. This is the evaluation stage. And they're trying to decide big agency, little agency, remote agency, you know, agency near my office. Like they're all these things they're deciding about their agencies. We want to help them make a good decision about the agency too. And then when they have narrowed it down and they're ready to hire us, they have even more questions. How much is it going to cost? Who am I going to work with? How long is it going to take me to get my results? And we have to answer their questions also. So the buyer journey gives us the ability to organize all those questions and then organize the content behind it. And once you have that, creating the content does become easier because you, you have a strategy that you're working towards. Now, I rattled off maybe 10 15 different questions there in a couple of minutes. So obviously you're probably, and even our clients, they don't answer every question in the first week of the engagement. Now it comes down to let's prioritize. Where do we need the most help? Do we need more people in the early stages of their buyer journey? Maybe we'll answer some of those questions and ungate it. Do we need more sales leads? Maybe we'll do more middle of the uh, uh, buyer journey content. Like a webinar is a good example of some middle of the buyer journey content. Or creating on-demand stuff like we're doing today is a good example of middle buyer journey content. Or maybe we just want to go right for the kill and get some sales opportunities. So what can we offer them where, where they will want to talk to us? And we're going to talk about that stage specifically because it's one that most people mess up pretty badly. But you know, that helps prioritize. None of our clients can do everything they want to do right away. They all generally have to kind of prioritize what we're going to work on and, and in what order. So this helps prioritize that also. Anything you want to add, Eric? No, great explanation. Awesome. Thank you. So, you know, we, we rattled off a ton of content. And this question from Barry in Los Angeles is, how much content is too much content? How much content is not enough? And I, I get asked this question very frequently. You know, how much do we need? And how do we know when we have enough? And how frequently do we need to come out with new pieces of content? And the answer to that, those, these questions really has to do with kind of where you are today in your content journey and how you're doing generally from a sales and marketing perspective. Because if you have no content, then you have to create a lot of content. If you have some content, then maybe you need to create less. A lot of our clients have content, but it's the wrong content. They have content about them. And Eric, I'm gonna ask you in a second to talk about some of the people we end up talking to who ask us, well, what do you think of our content? And we have to explain to them, it's all about them. A lot of people have content that we can take and kind of re-orient um, to the prospects so make it about the prospects and not about the company. So we see that very frequently, but how much you need and how often you publish it is going to have a lot to do with how far you have to come in terms of generating more leads and more sales opportunities for the sales team. The bigger that Delta is, my suggestion is going to be the more content you're going to need. Mike, uh, just talk a little bit about the gaps. Yeah. Um, it's a good point. So like we were saying, a lot of our clients have product specific content, which is useful, 
but that's way towards the back end of the buyer journey. And they don't have any kind of educational content at the front end of the buyer journey. So that would be a gap that we would identify for clients and then try to fill. The other gap is, and Eric kind of mentioned this uh, earlier, the late stage buyer journey offers are usually pretty bad. Contact us, speak with a rep, schedule a demo, uh, get a quote. That's what most companies do for late stage buyer journey offers. And everybody knows that those are sales meetings badly disguised as, as something else. So who wants to talk to a sales rep? I mean, even if I'm ready to buy, I mean, I only talk to the sales rep because I have to. No one really wants to ever talk to the sales rep. I see you wanting to make a comment. Go ahead, Eric. No, no. Uh, the only time I like talking to the sales rep is when I go to a timeshare and I have to sit right. there and I'm just dying to see how well, they tell me. You are the only one that likes that because that's sport for you. I, I know you, you prefer that meeting. Everyone else avoids it like the plague. I go twice uh, sometimes. <laughs> right. For two, you get two free condo stays. Um, you know, late stage buyer journey offers that actually add value is a huge gap right? We do a lot of them at Square Two. Like, hey, let us score your website, right? We will literally run your website through a grader and then sit down with you and talk to you about the current performance of your website, where it's good, where it's bad, what you should consider doing to fix it. It's incredible value, right? That, that Eric specifically is providing to prospects because we know that that conversation is going to eventually lead to, oh, wow, that's great. Thank you. Well, could you help us with that? Oh, yes, it just so happens we could probably <laughs> help you with that. Um, but we you gave them value. Is, Mike, sorry to interrupt, but that other yeah. uh, three ideas in 30 minutes is a very good one. Like, hey, let me take a look at what you got going on. I'll give you three ideas to improve it in 30 minutes. Not I'll sell you a marketing program, right. but let's have a conversation about improvement. Right. We actually do quite a few of these. We will um, uh, we will uh, talk to you about how many leads you think you need, because a lot of companies are actually misinformed about how many leads they actually need to generate to hit their sales goals. So that's another value-oriented late-stage buyer journey offer that we'll provide. Let's talk about your budget. Again, budgets are often underfunded based on the objectives and the results that companies are expecting. So we'll talk to you about what your expectations are and what you think your budget should be. So you know, those are really good examples of late-stage buyer journey content offers. And the beautiful thing about these is you don't need anyone to write them. You don't need anyone to design them. You don't need any kind of lead nurturing or any of the other tools that typically go with content that you'd be publishing or putting out there at the other stages of the buyer journey. You just need your sales team to be prepared to have those conversations. Like in terms of the website grader, we have a tool that Eric uses. He puts in their URL and out pops the report. So that makes it easy for us. But the three ideas, he's just prepared to talk to them about their business and then share some ideas with them. Sales reps are actually usually pretty good at this if you tee up the conversation correctly. So it's usually less expensive and easier to deliver those late stage buyer journeys if you just know what value you need to deliver. So Rhonda, that's a ton of examples for you. And Barry, I hope you understand that it really comes down to how much you have and how much you need and what you're expecting the content to do for your program. Okay. Awesome. So Eric, here's another one. What about the age old question when it comes to content quality? First, quantity. This was from Mark in Austin, Texas. You got any advice for him around quality versus quantity? Yeah, I mean, look, more content is typically better. There's no doubt about it. But 
dumb content, you know, bogus content doesn't help anybody. And I got a, a quick story. I, I got I got a friend and she's a um, audiologist. And I saw that all of a sudden on Facebook, there was all of these stories that her firm was posting about uh, general audiology topics, uh, hearing in sports, hearing for kids, hearing at work. But because I know her personally, I know her forte or her specialty is helping older folks with their hearing aids. So when I saw her social, I said, hey, what's going on with all this new content? She's, oh, it's great. For 150 bucks a month, we found this company. They'll just post all sorts of stuff about hearing. So I said, well, that's good. And, you know, activity breeds activity. There's no doubt about that. But they're not, you, you, the people that are following you or that are interested in you aren't hearing about your differentiation, how you help these older folks and how you help them choose the right hearing aid and the difference between ones with wires and ones with not and batteries that recharge and batteries you have to put. I said, wouldn't that be more interesting? She goes, yeah, but that would be a lot of work. And this is only 150 bucks a month. So, you know, she solved the problem of quantity. There's no doubt about it. But there's also a little bit about that's not really the essence of what she does or the reason that someone should call her versus the other doctors. And, and I think that that's a, a, an interesting story in the sense that if she would blend some of those stories together, have some really good stuff about like, you know, best uh, hearing aids for someone 80 and above, right? So, if that was mixed in with hearing in general, or maybe she rejected some from the content company that weren't exactly aligned with her message, she could get that blend of quality and quantity. Um, I guess if you put a gun to my head, which way I would go, I would go with quality because one good piece of content can be one, repurposed into other smaller chunks of content. And two, those are the kinds of things that when really done right, get shared. And we want content to be shared because I could share it amongst my leadership team, like, hey, check out this piece of content from this company. But I could also share it with my buddy who's in a similar position at another company. And that goes a long way because referrals, they don't cost a dime, right? And we're, it's the benefit of that extra effort of making an interesting and uh, share-worthy piece of content. So I guess if I had to choose, I'm going with quality. Yeah, that's a great illustration too. I think my answer to Mark is, is it's got to be both. You, you have to produce, you know, like there's lots of articles about thinking like a publisher. Companies today really need to think about their content strategy from a publisher's perspective. And you know how generally publishers work. They have a magazine, they publish it every single month, or they have um, a website and they update the content on a fairly regular basis. Or maybe they even have an, an annual event and they, they, they try to create the content for that event. It, it's a similar approach. You, you need enough content to be relevant. That's the quality piece. And it needs to be good enough to get someone's attention. That's the quantity piece. So, you know, in, in the example of our show here, we have to come up with a new show idea every single week, right? So you can't really phone it in and do low quality show ideas. And it won't matter that we're doing it every week. So we try hard to come up with uh, ideas and conversation starters that people are really interested in issues that they're really dealing with to help with the quantity piece. But if we only did the show once a month, we would have three, you know, only 25% of the content to drive some of our business objectives. So 
Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back to quality. Look at the amount of questions that people are submitting, right? So it's obviously on point with what they want to talk about. So I, I would lean that this is more quality because we're thoughtful about the topics. We're putting out in advance. People are asking questions, right? It's working as, as we expected. It is. But if we did one show a month instead of four shows a month, you would just have 20, only 25% of the content, right? Yeah. So, oh, because you mean we're talking about yeah. scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, it's not an easy question to answer, but you want to try to do both. And sometimes I think the, the repetition and the rhythms of your content are equally important, right? People start expecting a new blog article every Tuesday at 10 o'clock because that's when you typically publish them. And if it is high quality, they like it and they look forward to it. I would hope that a lot of people are looking forward to either our live show today, every Wednesday at four o'clock, or at least getting the email from us tomorrow after the show has been published on demand. And for them to now, you know, look forward to at some point tomorrow or the next day, taking a look at the show that they didn't attend live, like that rhythm becomes part of their, their, their daily routine, you know, if you will. And again, if the quality is good, the quantity allows you to deliver in a, in a scalable way. So, you know, it could also go the other way, Mike, there can be too much frequency. I uh, yes. follow this outdoorsy kind of store. Cause I like hiking and all that kind of stuff. And now they just, every single day they're pushing stuff out, but you know what it is? Here's a picture of a water bottle. It's on sale for $14.99. That is not high quality content. No. If they condense that into, I don't know, twice a week. And it was, hey, here we are out on the trail using this water bottle versus the other water bottle. Let's see which one keeps it colder faster. Let's throw it down the hill and see which one survives. Like I'd be so much more engaged rather than $14.99 today only because they're really just trying to sell me. Yeah, you're 100% right. I've actually been noticing that too and, and literally opting out of some of those emails because it's just too frequent and, and yeah. not that helpful. So yeah, you're right. Um, and that's a really good uh, um, transition into the next question from Jake in Milwaukee. How do we measure the performance of our content? Because again, like if we're publishing this content, we have very specific goals that we're trying to achieve with it. So I'll kick that off, Eric, and then you can come in and add some additional comments to it. There's so many ways to measure the performance of content. There are the, the practical ways, like you know the, the CTA clicks on your website, right? So if you have content gated or ungated, you have some kind of call to action, that, that tees up the content that people would be clicking on so that they can get it, right? If it's ungated, then you gotta kind of lean into the CTA click rate. How many people are seeing the CTA? How many people are clicking on it? And you have some idea about how well that ungated content is. If you're gating it, it's a little bit easier, but you have another step. You have the CTA that they click on, they then land on a landing page. So you have data around the specific landing page. They have to fill out the form, click submit, and then they have to get the, the piece of content that they're asking for. So there's a whole set of performance-related data that goes with that particular motion as well. Um, and those are the easy pieces to track, right? Like our show, it has a number of moving parts to it, right? We have a page on our website where people are submitting questions and subscribing. So subscribers is one way we measure how the show is doing. Uh, obviously all the YouTube analytics is another way how we measure how the show is doing, not only views, but how long people view it is, is it an important video related metric that sometimes gets buried. You're like, Oh, like Eric said it earlier, he has 20,000 views. Right. But if they only watched the first five minutes, 20,000 times, we didn't really achieve our objective of getting them to hear what he had to say. So you can dig into that on YouTube and see how long people are actually watching those videos. 
which is why a lot of people like short videos because you generally have a longer view time uh, when the videos are short. So the measures are obviously unlimited. Like we didn't talk about shares. We didn't talk about comments. Um, you know, on podcasts, you have subscribers and you have ratings and you have shares. Like, so there are a lot of metrics that, that you want to think about when you're looking for the performance of your content. And then look, Eric can comment on this because he's really the beneficiary of these. Ultimately, is it driving sales conversations? Is it driving leads for your uh, uh, sales team? And how good are those leads? So um, why don't you talk about that a little bit, Eric? Like, is there a difference between the, the quality of leads from certain sets of content that we publish? Yes, but with an asterisk, because not everybody shares the content that they consumed before they get to the sales process, right? So everybody who's listening on our show knows I'm the sales guy or lead sales guy, lead sales person here at Square Two. But I had a call today and it was a insurance company and they are only using a single channel to drive leads. They're spending $50,000 or more per month on paid and that's all they're doing. So the owner Googled uh, what else should I be doing besides paid? And we had a 2019, he shared this with me, blog post that he uncovered about, uh, I've, I, I'm, was, he, he phrased it like, I'm doing paid, dot, 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 now what else, right? Uh -huh. And it was the perfect thing. And it was uh, because of the way he searched and our title, it came up and he said, oh, this is the firm I got to talk to. Now, granted, I was two plus years old, right? But he said, I read that article and it spoke to me. And that's why I had to pick up the phone and call. And he literally called and left a message on our office. And I called him back and we set up a time to talk. And it was so interesting because I have heard so many times over the years, yep, I've been reading your emails for six months and I decided it was time to reach out. So I think that the effort that you're doing to support the reasoning someone should engage in the sales process is without question. How frequently, how much they're consuming before they get there is a little bit open-ended. And that's why I said with an asterisk. But if I had to put a number to it, 50% of the time, someone's referencing something they saw on our website, consumed, heard about, or a friend sent it to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that kind of gets back to this revenue attribution conversation that a lot of people in marketing are having. And I'm not a huge proponent of trying to attribute every dollar to a single marketing tactic or a single marketing campaign. I've always felt like good marketing works together, right? So how can you attribute a dollar to a specific tactic, right? You know, in Eric's example, they read the blog, but I'm sure they went to the website. I'm sure they looked at a bunch of pages on the website. They may have looked at other blog articles. They may have watched a video. He just mentioned the one thing that he happened to remember. They've been getting our email campaigns. Maybe he even attended a webinar a couple of years ago and forgot all about us. Like, I mean, I could dig into that if I wanted to in, in, in our um, CRM. But again, like good marketing generally works together to create an experience that, that when this person is ready, like this guy was, he reached out to us and, and scheduled a call. So I try to counsel people not to worry so much about specific revenue attribution to a specific marketing tactic or campaign. But obviously, in general, you have a certain amount of money that you're investing in marketing and you need it to produce results and a return. So you can look at it holistically. I think that's a better way to look at it if, you're, if this is something that's important to you.
I would agree. And it's a one plus one equals three. I have a call right. tomorrow with a company. And um, when I uh, went to their deal, I noticed that the person had either requested or maybe I offered a conversation to read our book, Smash the Funnel, about a year and a half ago. And they literally just converted on the uh, end of journey form and the, the discovery call is tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not quite the way we want it to work from a speed perspective, but to your point, scale. We got so many things out there now that it's definitely uh, multiplying each upon each other. Yeah, and that really speaks to this particular prospect's buyer journey. It is a two-year buyer journey, right? So whatever is causing them to have those long pauses, it's their buyer journey. There, you know, there's nothing you can really do to influence the speed of a buyer journey because it's mostly controlled by their internal uh, catalysts, right? Like how much pain are they in? You know, who, who's, you know, if someone rolled into your office tomorrow and said, we need to hire a marketing agency by Friday or you're fired. Well, that's an incredible amount of urgency. And they're immediately hitting the internet, filling out forms, scheduling calls, having meetings with Eric, and they, they know they need to do something. Well, that, that doesn't happen. In most cases, it, it, it meanders very organically and you never know really where it's going to go, which is why publishing content at different stages of the buyer journey and trying to influence that is important. But Again, it doesn't always work exactly like the marketers would like it to. Agreed. All right. We want to talk about content at scale. And there's another good question here that asks, how do we leverage internal business experts to create content? This is from Kathy in Scottsdale. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the hub and spoke approach to content, because I think it solves one issue. And then we can talk specifically about the video and audio and social motion, which I think solves another issue around scale. So if you look at your content efforts as individual activities, like, okay, we're writing a blog article and we're going to write one two times a week. And we want to create a long form piece of content, ebook, white paper, infographic once a month. And we want to do a webinar every quarter. Um, and we have, so we have a, a, a desire to do social media by do social media. I mean, publish something fairly regularly on social media. You send even a single person or, or multiple people who have responsibility for these different parts of the campaign execution, and you end up with a very inefficient process. But if you looked at it more holistically and strategically, you, you look at your buyer journey, you identify the questions, you look at your long form, you, uh, you pick a question and you agree, okay, I'm going to answer it with a long form piece of content. Let's just say for sake of argument, it's an ebook. If I go into it knowing that I want to promote the ebook on my blog, then the 10 reasons you want to hire a digital marketing agency ends up with 10 blog articles. Each of the individual items in your ebook can also be individual blog articles. Within those individual blog articles, you might have some conversation starters that can be repurposed into social media posts on a variety of platforms. And maybe you take that entire content effort and use it to create the content for your webinar that you're going to have during the quarter. And now in one content effort, you're going to create one to three pieces of long-form content, 10 to 30 blog articles, a webinar, and a multitude of social posts that you can hand to someone and say, okay, run these social posts on these different platforms. 
I know that all these social posts are going to link back to the related blog articles. I know that every single one of those blog articles is going to promote the, the ebook because it's directly related to what they're reading. And in a with a little bit of thinking, you've created a much more scalable content exercise, you know, to, to pull out a couple of, well, it's more than a couple of paragraphs, but to pull out, you know, a thousand to 2000 words from a 10,000 word ebook and turn it into a blog article, that's a much different exercise than having someone start that blog article from scratch. You might be talking about a half an hour exercise to change the intro paragraph, change the ending paragraph and reformat it a little bit than you would if you were someone was starting it from scratch. So that's what we call the hub and spoke approach. Like you have this hub of a content idea, you're running your big pieces off of it and off of the big pieces, you have your smaller pieces and off of the smaller pieces, you have what I typically call micro content, which are those social posts. It's a much more scalable way to create, honestly, three months worth of content and really leverage your resources very efficiently. Before I go on to the video and audio piece, you wanna add anything to that, Eric? One quick item. Um... When you look at your persona, right, the ideal customer that you'd love to attract to your company, one of the things that is kind of vague is how those individual people like to consume content. And in that story you just gave, Mike, you have reading, right? You have watching, you have listening, you have whatever you call social scrolling, right? There's a lot of different ways to deliver the content in a way that people like to consume it. So it's not just a hub and spoke, it's also matching up with a variety of ways. Look, if I'm selling to an engineer, I know they like long form written content. If I'm selling to a sales manager, they want a three minute video that they can watch on their phone. And that's why your hub and spoke explanation is good with the added layer that you're maybe catching people in different media, media, medium, media, uh, yeah. depending on how they wanna consume it. So there's an added benefit to that uh, multi-channel approach as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I got a question here live that I'm going to answer, uh, and then we'll move on to the scaling with video and audio content. So this is from Arthur. He, he's asking, obviously, all marketing is holistic and works together and builds over the journey. But aren't there sometimes, if not frequently, pieces of the marketing content that stand out as a CTA with response? And shouldn't those be tracked and supported to be used more until the results change or drop off. So if I'm interpreting that correctly, I think what he's asking is, don't you wanna lean into the CTA and it's, maybe he does, he's not referring to gated or ungated. I think what he's saying is lean into that content that's converting until it starts to not convert as well and then maybe swap it out with something else. Maybe that's what he means. And Arthur, if you're listening, you want to um, just chat a uh, clarification, that's fine. But yeah, if you are talking about that, that is absolutely true. When you are publishing content and you're keeping an eye on it, you do generally want to ride it as long as it's working. And when it stops working as well, you do want to tran transition it out. And we do that on our website all the time. Like when we publish new content, I will often look at what content isn't performing as well and say, hey, let's take that out and put this in. Um, there's also a ton of experiments we run on our own website with different types of content and different pages, homepage versus landing page or uh, uh, sec secondary pages. So that, that is correct. You do wanna track the performance of content and there will be a time probably when it becomes less effective uh, when, when you will want to swap it out for something else. And he just commented, yeah, that's right. So I'm glad we were able to answer that for you. That's a little trickier when it's ungated because you, the only 
data you really have is the CTA data. You don't really have the conversion data, but I still think you can do it if you're looking at, you know, clicks on the CTA versus last month or the month before that. So Arthur, appreciate no, the question. Thank you. Yeah. That, it opens up a whole other topic, which we maybe could get into if we have time, but that's the data analysis of the content performance, right? I remember one of our clients put out an early uh, blog article uh, regarding blockchain with before blockchain. And we were like, whoa, it was like 200 X times like uh, popularity. Well, rather than just go on to the next blog post, that data provides insights into, hey, let's do a video on this. Hey, maybe we should have a webinar around blockchain. And that's kind of started that conversation. But to Arthur's point, we have to track it. That's a really good point. I often look at the blog articles that get the most views and tend to do more of those because obviously people are more interested in that. And the ones that get less views, I, I, I'm not as interested in writing as frequently about. So that's a really good point, Eric. And that's relatively easy data to get access to if you're talking about you know, blogging specifically. So let's talk about scaling content when it's a little more 2022, like what we're doing here. So the, the written content generally takes a decent amount of time, right? So, you know, one of the questions is, uh, how do we leverage internal business experts to create content? And that's from Kathy and Scottsdale. And that's where this in the, the written content generally starts. You have these subject matter experts that you've probably heard them referred to before. Every company has a subject matter expert. It could be the product people. It could be the, the executives. It could be, you know, people with a lot of industry experience. And generally what happens is you, you interview those people you ask them some questions, you share a particular topic and get them to talk about their thoughts or their perspective on that particular issue. And that interview turns into the ebook, which turns into the blog articles, which turns into the webinar, which turns into the um, social posts. So that's generally how you leverage internal business experts to create those content. Now, what you want to potentially do is be smart about their time. And if you're going to spend an hour with them, you might want to ask them questions and and interview them around a number of content initiatives because i think where people run into trouble is hey i'm going to write a blog article let me spend an hour interviewing you and then next week you need another hour to do another blog article and the week after that you need another hour to do another blog article that's not super efficient it would be better to get you know a, a nice chunk of time be really efficient with the questions and the and the, the the topics you're covering get as much content from that person as possible record it so you can go back and look at it and, and, and use it to create additional pieces of content. And then you're not overexerting those business experts because look, they have jobs. Their, their jobs are not really to, to uh, participate in this. They, they do it because they, some of them might want to. They know it's good for the company. The CEO might have said, you guys are going to help marketing create this content. But they usually have other assignments that they're actually responsible for. So you got to be uh, aware of the time that they're giving this. Like we do this a lot with our clients. We try to be really efficient. If we can get done in a half an hour. That's better than, than taking an hour of their time. And then that interview feeds the hub and spoke content strategy that we talked about before. If you're talking about video and audio, the thing that I like about that is the interview almost instantaneously, instantaneously becomes the video. So Maybe you need a little post-production editing to turn it into something that you'd be comfortable putting out on YouTube. But generally that hour produced an hour of video content, an hour of audio content, and you can still take it and do other things with it, like 
cut it up for short snippets that you post on social, which is what we do with this show. When we're done, we send it to post-production. We have a guy who cleans it up and, and puts music in it for the front and back so the podcast can publish professionally. And he edits the, the video that we're doing here a little bit. And then I give him some snippets and he cuts it up into four or five snippets that we post on social media all during the week, promoting the show and our thought leadership and driving them back to our website. So again, that's a very small amount of time. The hour Eric and I put in, the hour to an hour and a half of post-production work that we have someone doing for us. And look at the sheer amount of content that we created, a, a video show, a podcast, snippets for social media, posts for our website, posts for our YouTube channel. Like that, in my opinion, is the 2022 version of how you scale your content strategy because people really want to watch. Let's be honest. Those written topics are, those written articles are good, but the video and the audio content is really where it's at today. That's really what people are looking to digest. And it's all on demand. It's all on their time frame. Like Eric said, not that many people watch us live. Many more people watch it on demand when they're ready to watch it, either because they subscribe to it or they found it on YouTube or they went back to our website. That's really how most people digest our content. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't really care how they get it or when they get it, as long as they get it. The post-production guy that we use is amazing. He makes me look 10 pounds lighter. <laughs> yeah, you made yourself look 60 pounds lighter. <laughs> um, okay, good. You know, so I, yeah, go I, ahead, I, no, I just, uh, I really want to emphasize the, uh, the, the, the video and the audio parts, right? Because you're right. If I'm sitting down with an accountant and I got to get a subject matter expert interview, set up a tripod, stick your iPhone on it and grab that. Because even if we had a five second uh, intro into the, uh, you know, just like getting that key little sound bite there, it's, it's free. It, all you have yeah. to do is set up the iPhone. We all have these like little Hollywood production studios in our pockets now with an iPhone. Yeah, it's so true. And we talk about that frequently. Video has for a long time been this kind of very expensive and corporate tactic that no small business can use or afford. And today it is 100% the opposite. Eric is 100% right. Your iPhone is a beautiful tool for taking high quality movie level video. And it is so easy to shoot, to edit, you know, even if you're not comfortable with the editing, you can get a guy on Fiverr to do your editing in an hour or two. Uh, and then before you know it, you have a whole library of videos that you can share on your on your website, in your blog, in your email campaign. You can sales can send these videos out. It really upgrades your entire content strategy to start thinking video first and maybe written content second. Good. So in the last couple of minutes, let's try to tackle these last two questions. One, I think Mike, is, Mike, Mike, what, I'm at the what? edge of my seat. Don't forget about the Easter egg. Oh, the Easter egg. Right, right, right. Okay. So the Easter egg, if you've been listening and you like what we have to say, email me, Mike at square2marketing.com, and we will literally take a look at your content for you. We'll do a very uh, uh, reasonable content audit and let you know what pieces are good, what pieces maybe should be retired, what pieces might need to be just reimagined so they're more about your prospect and less about you. And we'll even show you how to maybe unpack your old school resources library and distribute that content out through your website so it can really work for you. Um, and again, email me, mike at squaretomarketing.com and Eric and I will take a good look at your website and your content and tell you how to have a much more productive content strategy. Thank you for reminding me, Eric. That's quite the Easter egg. Nice offer. Yeah. Speaking of your old resources section, I would be remiss if I didn't share with you guys something that I think is pretty big. 
I think the resources section might be dead. Everybody has them. Everybody tucks their content away in the resources section. And then everybody wonders why no one downloads anything, why no one reads anything. Because those resources sections are really very hard to find. It's not that you can't find a section, but the content in there is generally not organized really well. And even if you have a little search feature to it, no one wants to wade through all of your corporate brochures and all of your you know, articles to try to find something that they might be looking for. You need to rethink that. And my suggestion for all you today is to start thinking about your content more like a streaming service. So I want everybody to go back to the Square2 website and go down to the bottom and click on the Square2 Plus link. And what we've done is created a 2022 version of our resources section that is more like Netflix. On that page, you can find all of our audio content, all of our video content. It's organized by channels. It's organized by series or shows, just like Netflix. And you can find literally anything you're looking for, just like you look through Netflix. And eventually, it'll have some of the features and benefits of Netflix, like recommended for you and, and a search feature. But it's a V1 of a streaming service for a B2B company like us. But it's a metaphor that all of us are super comfortable with these days. And you really should start thinking about how you uh, display and give access to your prospects and clients uh, around your content. And I think this is a much more uh, progressive way to start looking at it. Um, and you can actually subscribe to Square2 Plus just like you subscribe to Netflix. Of course, it's free. We're not charging for it. And when we do publish new content, which we do every single week, we publish new content to Square2 Plus, including technical briefs on HubSpot once a month. These shows get published there. When we do webinars, uh, all of our content is, is now going to be on Square2 Plus. I think that's how businesses really need to start thinking about how they distribute their own content as well. So something for you guys all to take a look at. And, um, oh, here's the last question. This is for you, Eric. What wraparound tactics should go with the creation of a piece of content like an ebook or infographic? This is from Desmond in UK. Did you know we have an international audience for this show? We do today. Right. And when you say wraparound, you mean like, doom, doom, right? Like that's, okay. All right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if we're going to publish a piece of content, we don't just throw it up on the website and say, good luck, right? Oh, oh, it has oh. a CTA. It has a landing page. It has uh, a confirmation page, a delivery mechanism. It has lead nurturing that goes with it. Talk to the crew a little bit about how all of that, uh, all of those elements get orchestrated really well. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, so it's a puzzle and there's 20 pieces to the puzzle. Just because your company created an ebook, it's just only one step of the 20, right? The content has to be nestled amongst a strategic way to then distribute it, alert people, follow up with people. So yeah, all those things you just mentioned are critical, but I, I really like to drill down on the nurture. And the reason being is that when I download a piece of content, I know that that piece of content typically points to where they are in the journey and the questions that they're asking at that point, which makes it easy to create the follow-up nurture, right? Well, if they're just at the beginning of the journey, I'm going to drip on them five times over the next two weeks. And the first three emails are going to be early journey compliments to the piece that they have. They downloaded an ebook. I sent them a video on an adjacent topic. I sent them a blog post that they could link to, blah, blah, blah. Then at the end, I'm like, okay, well, maybe you want to sit in on a webinar, kind of middle of the journey. And then maybe the last one is talk to someone. But I think people do a very poor job of 
planning out strategically the nurture. Uh, it's critical because when someone downloads a piece of content, by definition, they are interested at that very moment. And if you're not taking advantage of all the things that wrap around that piece of content in order to drive a sales opportunity, it's all for naught, right? You went through all that work. Like you said, you interviewed someone for an hour, you sent it off to post-production. Now you just put it on your website. Nobody knows about it, right? Um, I think that that's an important part. I had this same conversation when people talk to us about pay-per-click, right? Hey, we got a campaign running on, on pay-per-click and we're saying, if you're interested in buying from us, click here, takes them to the homepage and then they call it a day. No, that's like step two of 50 to get them to be a sales opportunity. What page I drive them to? What else am I offering them? How am I converting them? How am I nurturing, right? So the content piece is just one piece of the puzzle that you have to consider. You got to pan all the way back and look at what the whole process is going to be and then build around that piece of content so that you have someone who goes, wow, I think, wow. And I know we're close to the end of time here, Mike, but I think the wow is something that you also have to emphasize. And the reason being is that if I put up a nine mistakes to avoid when hiring an accounting firm, there's nothing wrong with that piece of content, but nobody is going, yo, Charlie, did you see that piece of content about nine mistakes to avoid? You got to make it a little bit more remarkable, which goes back to marketing strategy in the beginning. If you have nothing interesting to say about your company, please do not spend any money on marketing. And this is just another example of that. The content has to be really rock solid, really answers questions, really gets start, uh, people to engage. And now that's your opening. Now drive in there with all those other things that uh, are adjacent to the content to keep them going through the buyer's journey. Yeah, that's such a good point. And then I'll, I'll just wrap up with this. You, you mentioned it. The, the ability to move people through the buyer journey with your nurture is really the key. So if they do convert and you get a new contact uh, for your email database, you really don't yet have an opportunity to talk to them until your, your next planned email goes out, which honestly could be a month away, right? But if you're, well, you're nurturing to monthly email yes, newsletter type stuff, yes, right. yes, yes. But if you're nurturing them properly and you send them an email later that day or the next day with a blog article and an opportunity to subscribe to the blog and they take you up on that, now you're talking to them, in our case, three times a week with a new blog article, right? So the ability for me to influence them in their buyer journey 12 times over the course of the month, simply because they downloaded something, puts me in a much better position to turn that new contact into a MQL or a SQL or even a sales opportunity than I had before. If the second email invites them to a webinar, again, as Eric said, that's a signal that their, their buyer journey is moving along fairly aggressively if they're now interested in spending an hour with us learning about something that we're going to be talking about. And at the end, if they want to actually speak to us, like to get their website graded, well, again, it's a signal to us that this buyer journey is moving very quickly. Yes, we've we pulled them along the buyer journey, but that's what the nurture is designed to do. And their activity is very specifically signaling us where they are, and then we can take advantage of that. So Eric is 100% right. It is an underutilized tactic that can be very, very efficient. Now, you know, not to spill cold water on the whole thing, but if you're not gating your content, and again, I don't think you should gate all your content, then you don't have the ability to nurture, but that's a whole different story for another session for sure. Agreed. Good. Eric, thank you so much. This was, in my opinion, probably one of our better sessions. So I hope everybody agrees. Um, thanks everybody for joining us next Wednesday on the show. We're going to talk about 
how you're not creating advocates for your business. And I'm super excited to have a uh, the CMO at PTO Exchange, Greg Makuch. Um, Greg is a uh, marketing executive that, you know, uh, he and I have been kind of uh, talking back and forth virtually for a long time. Um, and he was uh, happy to come on the show. PTO Exchange is an interesting idea. You can literally uh, take your vacation time and put it on an exchange and get some benefit from it. If you're not going to take it, maybe someone else can. And he can explain the details to you because I don't know exactly how it works. But we're going to talk to him about advocacy and how it can really drive your business. Um, uh, Mike, thanks. just to interrupt, I won't be available for the next few weeks because I just traded for some PTO <laughs> time. So good luck. You're over your PTO time, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Um, okay, so thanks everybody for joining again. Check out the show on YouTube, like it and subscribe, comment if you want to. Check out the show on our website at the bottom. There's a link, what's wrong with revenue. You can submit questions. You can subscribe to the show. Get us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Again, like us and subscribe and rate us on those podcast platforms. And don't forget to check out Square 2 Plus and you'll see a slightly different way in which you can pre pre present content to your clients and prospects also. Thanks everybody for joining us. Have a great day and we'll talk to you all next week. So long. <laughs>